Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Family in Christ, how are you doing today? Hope you had a wonderful weekend. Um, I want to remind you, you can subscribe to our uh, weekly Watchman. It is not a newsletter. We send out a podcast recap. If you miss any of the guests any given week, you can sign up at StandUpForTheTruth.com. And it's simply one email every Friday around 1 p.m., roughly, you should get an email in your inbox with the five podcasts from that week on Stand Up For The Truth, and we encourage you to forward that and share that. So you can go right to our website. I'm trying to figure out how to do it on my iPhone right now, and it's a little different than on the desktop, but there is a way to subscribe to, there it is, it's called The Weekly Watchman. You just have to scroll down a little bit if you're on your iPhone. So we encourage you to do that. We don't want you to miss any outstanding guests. I've been talking to so many people, went to the uh, Rooted in Christ conference in Green Bay Saturday, and even yesterday at church, talking to so many people about how important it is just to be up on what God's Word teaches and to be in fellowship with those who you can sharpen and they can sharpen you. And um, I've also been talking a lot with people about the inerrancy of Scripture, such a big, big um, thing that we need to be concerned about because that is one of the reasons we've seen this falling away. Apostasy in the church, false teachings, people believing in things that are not biblical, people being deceived, and people falling for cultural, social things and and that get away from the Bible. So uh, we'll be talking more about that in the days and weeks, and I'm probably years to come. But uh, right now, I want to bring in our guest today. J.B. Hickson is back with us. And of course, he's the an author of a great book called Spirit of the Antichrist, The Gathering Cloud of Deception. It's doing very, very well. Praise God. It's packed with research. And um, he's also the pastor of Plum Creek Chapel near Denver, Colorado, in Sedalia. Shout out to our friends there in Colorado. And he's the founder of Not By Works Ministries. JB, welcome back to Stand Up For The Truth, brother. Hey, hey David, great to be back. And uh, when are you going to come see us again at Plum Creek Chapel? I'm waiting for an official invite. <laughs> okay, I hereby officially invite you. <laughs> okay. All right, well, well, I would love to lock down a date. I just really enjoy uh, that area, and especially your church and the saints there. So, yeah, that would be awesome to reconnect All with. All right, I'll, re- I'll reach out offline here. Sounds good. Um, so, JB, what you've been traveling a little bit. So before we get into a few, uh, well, one of the questions I wanted to ask before we get into the actual topic today, uh, just let us know what's been going on with Not By Works Ministries. Yeah, thanks. Uh, we uh, just got back from a Pacific Northwest uh, uh, trip. Uh, w- my wife Wendy went with me, and we're still out uh, talking about uh, the book, you know, Spirit of the Antichrist. And it's there's so much out there happening daily uh, that indicates the stage is being set for uh, the soon coming of our Lord. And so we just believe it's the most important book I've written, and it's so timely, and we need to get the message out. So uh, we were up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, had a fantastic event there. Um, and uh, really uh, standing room only and just some great questions in the Q&A. Uh, and then, uh, and, and by the way, all of the videos from these uh, speaking engagements the last couple of weeks are available at notbyworks.org. Uh, but then we went from there across the river to Spokane, Washington, and spoke at Spokane Bible Church and uh, had some, some great results there. Although uh, what we're finding, David, is since the book came out March 21st, we've We've seen an uptick in, in spiritual warfare and the devil's attempts to uh, distract from the message and to cause disruption. And uh, that happened at one of the sessions in Spokane. We had a lady actually collapse in the middle of the wow. event, and they had to call an ambulance, and it caused a delay. Uh, she's doing fine, thankfully. We stopped and, and prayed for her, obviously, in the midst of that uh, crisis. Uh, but it's just another example of whenever I begin to speak about uh, what the devil is doing in his attempts to overthrow uh, God and, and, and take control of this world for himself, uh, the devil himself comes, comes in and causes problems. Uh, mm. so, but it was a great event there in Spokane, and then we circled back through California. 
where Wendy and I had a rare opportunity to sit in on a conference, a Berean Fellowship conference, uh, where I wasn't speaking, but just kind of get fed a little bit ourselves, and that was wonderful. And then we came back uh, home here to Colorado, got in uh, Friday night, and man, it was so great to be back in the pulpit at Plum Creek Chapel Sunday. Both of those messages from yesterday are posted, and uh, just, uh, man... You know, it's it's more than one guy can handle to get to speak at a, such an awesome church wow. on Sunday and then be on the Stand Up For The Truth show on Monday. <laughs> well, th- thank you for your kind words there, but we're glad that God's keeping you busy. Uh, it's, a, it's a blessing that our work is not done here yet, and uh, we don't take that for granted, what he's called us to do, JB. And I want to congratulate you, too. I think we talked about this a little bit last time you were on with us, but, um, you know, Harbinger's Daily has gotten a hold of you, and recently they've been publishing a couple of your podcasts and articles. And so, friends, you can go to harbingersdaily.com, and JB is listed as one of the uh, many trusted podcasts. So kudos, brother. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, it's just amazing, and and I also noticed in Jan Markell's newsletter, uh, someone gave me this yesterday, the printed copy, uh, that she said that Spirit of the Antichrist is her best-selling book to date. Wow! Uh, at, at Olive Tree Ministries, and so praise God. Uh, that's just sh- stunning to me because yeah. I never dreamed that this message that I really had been researching and studying for fifteen years and finally really put down into this comprehensive uh, work would would get that kind of traction but i'm thankful to the lord that it is because again the message is vital and of course it's we share the gospel very plainly at the end of the book uh so and by the way volume two people keep asking me about volume two it's coming out october november we completed the first draft it's in review and uh, working hard to get that made available by uh october november and if you think volume one was was powerful the topics that we discuss in Volume 2 are just stunning. So Wow. Uh, wow, amazing. Well, that's good to hear. Good news. Um, I, I want to talk to you. We're, now, today, I just want to let people know where we're going. Um, we've talked about Calvinism on this podcast before. Um, I know a couple of friends who are pastors at churches that have had problems, maybe one in particular, with an associate pastor who started going down that road uh, uh, to into Calvinism, I mean deeply into Calvinism, not just kind of over some of the topics or issues that uh, that we might agree on, but really deeply into the Calvinistic um, uh, view of Scripture, and they really had a falling out, and that's, that's just really sad. So we need to talk about that, talk about election, the doctrine of election, and when I mean election, not to salvation, I mean to salvation, not to public office. So we have elections coming up. Uh, speaking of elections, JB, uh, we've got something in Wisconsin here, and I'm sure your state has some. Um, and then we've got the big midterms in November. And it seems like the government and the new, or the, not the new world order, the world, the world health organization, they just recently activated their highest alert level. For the growing monkeypox outbreak, I'm not making this up, um, they declared the virus a public health emergency of international concern. And the WHO, can. Now let's be clear, they can only issue guidance and recommendations. They cannot issue mandates. That's up to the uh, member uh, states. So, JB, just your thoughts on that and what we probably will be seeing as we get closer to the midterm elections. Well, yeah, as I read that news article this morning, I couldn't help but think I've seen this movie before. <laughs> um, you know, it's, uh, yeah. and by the way, you talk about uh, the World Health Organization not having authority. That's, that's true for now, but they are mm. working hard, hand in glove, with uh, World Economic Forum and the UN to try to make the World Health Organization have more, uh, you know, sovereign control over these issues. But yeah, I think it's just more setting of the stage. Um, uh, I, I like what Jan Markell said in her latest uh, newsletter, we're trending toward the tribulation, mm. and that's just a great tagline because yeah. that's what we're seeing. You know, We know that the rapture is imminent. It could happen at any moment. Uh, nothing has to happen before the rapture can happen. But if we see signs that are indicating things that will happen in the tribulation are, are beginning to be put in place, that should, you know, get our attention and show us that indeed the rapture is even closer. So, yeah, it's just more, um, more setting the stage for what's to come in this one-world uh, religious, political, and economic system. 
So uh, one more thing I have to just mention. I, I haven't announced this in quite a while, but for our newer listeners to the podcast, you can get Stand Up For The Truth merch, gear. What do I mean by that? Hats, uh, T-shirts, long-sleeve shirts, coffee mugs, water bottles, hoodies at redpillprints.com. This is not run through our ministry here uh, we're near Green Bay, Wisconsin. This is this is a family in Canada that are believers in Christ, truth proclaimers, and they love what we do. And they've designed all this merchandise for us. And and after the costs are covered, we get the proceeds of any sales. So you can support Stand Up for the Truth indirectly by going to our page and go to StandUpForTheTruth.com right at the top. Simple one word. It says merch. Now, JB, let's talk about. Where did you start? You're doing a series, I believe, on Wednesday nights. I think you're on part seven on Calvinism. Um, where did you start and what can you do today as just to provide an overview of what we'd like to tackle on this podcast? Yeah, you bet. You know, so I just want to kind of give some, some qualifiers <clears throat> here at the beginning. Uh, first of all, at Not By Works Ministries, which we started back in 1999, so we're in our 23rd year. <clears throat> Our driving core value is the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. Uh, that's what uh, you know. What what motivates us? You know, our name, not by works, comes from Titus three five, which says, "Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us." So I have really ha- <clears throat> had a passion for you know the accuracy and clarity and urgency of the gospel for thirty five years, really since. Right before I started seminary, the Lord really burdened me with um, the fact that you know there are so many false gospels out there, and and even more than that, there's there seems to be no real concern over it among the average evangelical Christian. And so, uh, my first book uh, many years ago was called "Getting the Gospel Wrong." It's uh, since came out in a second edition, and it's still one of the ones that. You know, I recommend the most. Uh, in fact, I gave a copy away Friday to someone that I met Friday night after we got, I'm sorry, Saturday. I, we got home Friday night, Saturday. I met someone, and, and uh, we were talking about the gospel, and I gave him a copy of that book, Getting the Gospel Wrong. So uh, so the reason this subject of Calvinism matters, you know, a lot of people say, you know, why does this matter? Isn't this just the stuff that theological debates are made of, and why do we care well, I'll tell you exactly why we care, and that's because Calvinism is directly related to the gospel of eternal salvation. Mm. And more than that, theology matters. Yeah. Um, now, what matters most is what does the Bible say, but uh, theological systems, uh, generally speaking, emanate from the Bible, or at least they should, and you know, those who promote Calvinism uh, are promoting a system of the way in which a lost sinner can come to be saved uh, that I believe contradicts uh, Scripture. Now, let me hasten to add, I think there, I'm not suggesting that anyone who teaches Calvinism is unsaved. What I'm saying is what they're teaching is not going to lead someone to be saved. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paul, the very first letter Paul ever wrote in Galatians, uh, he starts right out by talking about his passion for the gospel, and he says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him come under strict judgment. That's what the word anathema means. He says, let him be anathema, which means come under strict judgment. And so it just so happens that I'm teaching through the book of Acts right now at Plum Creek Chapel, and this, yesterday we were in Acts 13, which is the beginning of Paul and Barnabas's missionary journey, and so that's where Paul visited the region of southern Galatia, mm-hmm. preached the gospel, and then shortly after he returned from that journey, he wrote the book of Galatians and, and made that statement that I just said. So when he says, anyone who preaches a gospel other than what I preach to you, we have the record of what he preached to them. It's in the book of Acts, and it's in, in the inspired word of God. So uh, it does matter. It's uh, something that you know I try to be gracious about because I've had the opportunity to share the platform with leading Calvinists of our day, uh, like John Piper, uh, uh, R.C. Sproul before he died, um, Al Mohler. Uh, I've had conversations with them. I respect them. I just have a very strong uh, disagreement with them over precisely what someone has to do uh, to have eternal life. Let's just start with the gospel. Uh, of course, we can go to 1 Corinthians 15, 
which the gospel between uh, verses 3 through 8 and who Jesus appeared to. Um, But I want to go to Romans chapter 10, verse 9, says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, we understand, J.B., that God is sovereign over all of this and who comes to him uh, when we hear the gospel, uh, preparing someone's heart, whether we're planting a seed, watering a seed, or God causing it to grow into a conversion. But this is pretty clear that we have to take a necessary step, and that is to believe. So can you kind of clarify that for us? Because it seems like some who would lean toward Calvinism would would say, no, 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 most of it, if not all of it, but they might say most of it rests on God's calling, choosing, or, you know, electing certain people to believe. Can you explain that for us? Yeah, so more than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone in Christ alone. I mean, it could not be more clear. And yet, Calvinists teach, in the second point of Calvinism, that there are no conditions for man to be saved. God does it all. God elects, and faith, for the, according to a Calvinist, is just an involuntary response. We, we don't choose to believe. God believes for us. And so they believe that the instrumental cause of, of a person having eternal life is election, and that God chooses them, and if they're in, they're in. If they're not, they're not. And by the way, I, in this radio program, I'm, just, I'm going to be making a lot of statements that some people may um, wonder about. In the series, mm-hmm. we give, in their own words, repeatedly, we quote what leading Calvinists say. So I'm not putting words in their mouth, and uh, my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, you know, has... I don't know, five, six hundred footnotes, something like that, uh, of the, you know, quoting these guys mm-hmm. and other elements. So, we absolutely, you have to believe the gospel to be saved. It's a free gift, but a gift freely offered has to be freely received. Mm-hmm. If a gift is forced upon you and you have no choice in the matter, uh, then that's not a gift. No. So, you know, it's mm-hmm. not, it's, you know, salvation is not a bilateral contract between man and God where we somehow pledge or promise or commit, and, and that's the other issue with Calvinism. When you get to the fifth point, uh, perseverance of the saints, you know they believe that every Christian must continue to do good works until he dies, and if he doesn't, he's not saved. Really? Absolutely. That's wow. perseverance of the saints. In fact, R.C. Sproul famously said, and others have made similar statements, that they can never be 100% sure they're going to heaven, because if on their deathbed they fell away from the Lord, it would prove they weren't really saved. Now, we don't believe that. We believe the Bible teaches that, uh, you know, your salvation is secure. You get eternal life the moment you believe the gospel, and nothing can change that. Uh, scripture, uh, you know, certainly speaks of the serious consequences of sin in the life of a believer. But God will never undo uh, what he did the moment you believe the gospel. So, um, so we believe it's a free gift. It's a unilateral gift offered by God, paid for by the blood of Christ. But you have to receive it. And how do you receive it? By faith. And Calvinists uh, don't believe that. They believe that faith is just something that happens involuntarily in the part of a person after uh, God regenerates them. We believe faith is the cause of regeneration, not the result of regeneration. And I I go into several passages of Scripture in the series. By the way, you can get this uh, What is Calvinism and Is It Biblical series that I'm teaching through right now, mm-hmm. we actually have the whole series on a streaming video um, if you want the whole series. Now, again, we're going through this again in real time, and you can do that every Wednesday night at 6 o'clock Mountain Time. You can live stream from Plum Creek Chapel. But if you want the packaged you know, series that we've previously put together, uh, that's available uh, as a streaming video series. So our guest today is J.B. Hickson, Not By Works Ministries. I also understand that five-point Calvinists see problems with four-point Calvinism. So I'm going to ask you to maybe make sense of that for us when we come back. And I think we need to take another step back and look at the five points. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. In a little more detail, we come back on Stand Up for the Truth with J.B. Hickson. 
Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. Lots to talk about today on this subject with J.B. Hickson, and we could uh, definitely do a series at least a week of podcasts, and that's seven. And that's what J.B. Hickson is doing at his church right now on Wednesday nights. He's in part seven on his teaching series on Calvinism, so we can't possibly cover all the points and scriptures today uh, and explain them. But, J.B., let's go back to the difference between... Well, before we do the difference between a five-point Calvinist and a four-point Calvinist, let's go to basically the five and just briefly explain, and I'll let you do that, because uh, I pulled up, got questions, and I'm not sure about one of them as far as how they describe it is accurate, so I'll let you go through that if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, you bet. So let me, before we get to the five points, let me start talk about where it all began. And it, it began, of course, with the namesake John Calvin, who was a great Reformation leader and is the father of, of, of that, you know, theolo- theological system, Calvinism. And... Um, but, uh, you know, in reality, the Calvinist scheme that, that is now promoted came about actually about 50 years after his death with a guy named Theodore Beza. Mm. Theodore Beza was a French Reformed uh, scholar, theologian, who wrote a biography of Calvin and succeeded Calvin as the pastor there in Geneva of the, of the Genevan Church. And he, he wrote and taught extensively about what became the Calvinist system of theology, and they were opposed to Arminianism, this was in the 1600s, by the way, mm-hmm. early 1600s, uh, Arminians drew up a, a, uh, a statement against John Calvin's teachings that Theodore Bates promoted. This is what we call the Remonstrance. Uh, remonstrance is just something that you know where you speak out against. Uh, and uh, that was in 1610. Well, in response to that, uh, Calvinists, uh, in that day, 1618, 1619, right around in there, held a, a meeting called the Synod, a Synod, a Synod of Dort, that's where it was held, in which they crystallized and articulated their five main points. Hmm. And so that was, you know, 400 years ago now. And, uh, and, and so it's, of course, evolved like a lot of theology, but today, uh, leading a Calvinist would would define the five points of Calvinism this way. And the easy way to remember it, as you just said right before the break, uh, is uh, through the acronym TULIP, like the flower, Mm -hmm. T-U-L-I-P. So the first point is total depravity. Now, what do they mean by total depravity? They they mean that uh, a person who is uh, born dead in their trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, no question about that, but what they define that as is you do not have the ability to believe. So they repeat often the, the phrase, dead men can't believe. The problem is I've searched the Scripture and I can't find a single passage in Scripture that says dead men can't believe. <laughs> it says we're dead, but what does it mean to be spiritually dead? Mm. According to Scripture, spiritually dead means separated. In fact, that's what death means in every case. Physical death, for example, means separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death means separation of mankind from God. But the one thing that can make us alive and bridge that gap and restore that relationship is faith. And absolutely, an unbeliever can believe the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no question. It's a bona fide offer. Uh, the Bible repeatedly says, whosoever believes in me has everlasting life. And he wouldn't make that offer if you couldn't do it. And so, again, we make this case theologically in the series. We give several passages that show this. But they believe total depravity means you can't believe the gospel, period. You do not have the ability to believe the gospel. And then unconditional election, they say that your salvation is, you have nothing to do with it. It's completely unconditional. Well, the problem with that is there is one condition that's repeated, you know, hundreds of times in the Old and New Testament alike, and that's faith. Faith. You believe and you're saved. You believe and you're justified. The passage you read in Romans 10, you believe in your declared righteousness, what the heart man believes and is made righteous. So there is one condition, and it's faith. And then the third point is limited atonement, which Calvinists teach means that Christ only died for the elect. He didn't die for the sins of the whole world. Uh, but the problem with that is, again, several passages say just the opposite. First uh, John 2, 2 says, Christ himself is the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction of God's wrath on our behalf but not for ours only, but for the whole world, First John 2, 2. In, in uh, Second Peter, we have a 
passage where it speaks of people that were denying the Lord who bought them, so they clearly were purchased by the blood of Christ, and yet they end up in the blackness of darkness of hell forever. That's because Christ died and paid the sins for the whole world. Hmm. But only those who receive it have eternal life. That's the key. And so the Christ's death on the cross was sufficient for all, but efficient only for those who believe. Calvinists disagree. They teach that Christ didn't die for everybody. He only died for the elect, because that's what matters. Everything else is sort of ancillary. Whether or not you believe the gospel is even ancillary to some Calvinists. I've heard Calvinists teach that if you die before you have a chance to have that involuntary response, but as long as you're elect, you'll go to heaven. So that's, lim- that's limited atonement. Then wow. the U in TULIP is unconditional election. Unconditionally, uh, I'm sorry, T-U-L-I, the I is irresistible grace. And again, it's a lockstep system, and since they believe God does it all, you could not resist the gospel if you wanted to. So if you're an unbeliever and you're not elect, you have no possibility of ever believing the gospel. If you're elect, you can't reject the gospel. You, you have no choice in the matter. Is it you're forced to believe it. That's see, irresistible grace. JB, it, and then the P is okay, perseverance, which many people mistakenly think means eternal security. That's not what it means. They believe it, and if you read the, their writings and even modern writings today, it's very clear, I have a whole section of this in the book, that they believe true Christians will persevere in good works until the end. That you, if you stop doing good works, you're never, you never were saved. You'll end up in hell. So again, they make works the, the requirement on the back end, you know, whereas Arminians make works the, the requirement on the front end. Arminians say, you must do good works to become saved. Calvinists say you must do good works or you never were saved. Mm. And if you if you fall away or you apostatize or you you know somehow turn against the Lord, then you know you're not going to heaven in their view. So that's that's in a nutshell. That's a very high level summary, of course. Um, and academicians that are listening are going pulling their hair out, saying, "Oh, there's there's so much more nuances to it." But I'm telling you, having studied this for 35 years, when you get right down to it, that's the essence, and, and that's why I. You know, really challenge people to to think through the issue and 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 not accept the Calvinist view. Boy, JB, I think I have a follow up question on every point that, <laughs> that you just laid out. But one of them, especially on the irresistible grace, um, it just seems like th- this kind of belief system would minimize the importance of evangelism. And some people would say, well, if if it's all on God, then He knows who He's going to choose and who He's not going to choose. Why do we have to share the gospel? We are commanded to share the gospel, and that's how people get saved. Well, so some Calvinists are uh, passionate evangelists. And yes, yes. Um, it's actually surprising because of what you just said. But, uh, you know, you think of guys like Spurgeon, uh, mm-hmm. who was a great evangelist, and he was a five-point Calvinist. Um, but, I, but I know some Calvinists that honestly, you know, are consistent with their own system and saying, you know what, it doesn't really matter. In fact, I remember, uh, I may have told this story before, but uh, I was at lunch one time with a Calvinist, and we had uh, shared the gospel with our waiter, our server, and it was a young lady, early 20s, you know, she asked us why we were in town, and I said I was there for a conference, and so that started a discussion about spiritual matters, and so we actually went back to that restaurant two or three times during the conference, and each time we had you know asked for her and had opportunity to talk about the Lord, and you know left her a track with the tip each time. But at the end of the conference, when we left the restaurant for the last time, uh, and she had not really responded uh, you know favorably to the gospel, my friend who was a Calvinist looked at me and said, "Well, obviously she's not elect." Oh and, my you know, I goodness! Just to punch him wow. <laughs> You know, we, we don't know who's elect. That's the key. Yes. Scripture does not differentiate the elect from the non-elect in their unregenerate state. Nobody has an E on their forehead. Wow. So that's why I believe in, in what I'm teaching in this series, is that the Bible teaches both election and free will. I don't have a problem with the election. I think that's clear enough in Scripture. The problem is if you camp out there, then, you know, you end up, a fatalist. You end up just like this guy. Well, she must not be elect. No, wow. we must assume that everybody's elect, and we share the gospel passionately because I believe every single person on earth has the capacity to believe the gospel. Again, spiritually dead, 
does not mean cannot believe. Nowhere yes. does the Bible teach that. Spiritually dead just means separated, and the one thing that will restore that relationship is faith. Thank you. So the next question I would have is, uh, going back, you said Calvinism came out um, how many years after Calvin? Well, 50 years is when Beza uh, really started kind of crystallizing it, but it's it's gone through many refinements, but okay. the core five points remain the same. Well, so it's interesting. We, and, yeah, I think of Roman Catholicism and how they made Peter to be the first pope, and really that, you know, there's nothing. I mean, Peter said, I'm an elder, fellow elder, and there's so many other issues with that, but uh, would John Calvin have even been a Calvinist in modern definitions of Calvinism? On some points, no. In fact, I quote him often in this series yeah. <laughs> show that, that he disagrees with modern Calvinism. Interesting. Most notably, again, Calvinists today teach that faith is an involuntary response, that God must give you the faith. Calvin plainly taught that was not true. Uh, he said the gift is salvation in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which it is, grammatically and syntactically in the Greek text. The, you know, when he says, for by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The it there is salvation, hmm. not faith. It can't be faith. Uh, and Calvin understood that. He was a student of, of the Greek, and, and so he, uh, he did not believe that. So faith is not a gift. The gift is salvation. Faith is the means of receiving the gift. You know? Right. So, it's like if I handed you a present, David, and then I said, uh, how do you like that gift? And you say, oh, I love it. Thank you so much, J.B. And, and then I were to say, how do you like that other gift? And you say, what do you mean, what other gift? And I go, your hands. You know, the hands that you used to receive the gift, that's a gift, too. It's <laughs> absurd. It's a category uh, confusion. Uh, there's a gift, there's a giver, and there's a receiver. And there's a means by which we receive. We receive a physical gift with our hands. We receive the spiritual gift of eternal life by faith alone in Christ alone. Okay, the next question I would have is certain scriptures that talk um, about many. Um, I'm just thinking one right now, Matthew uh, 20, 28, that says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many— Whereas we know, a lot of scriptures say, God so loved the world, he, he loved the world that he gave. Right? Does that make sense? So it's, it's almost like I, we know the Bible does not contradict itself, and in some po- portions it says many, and in other portions of scripture he clearly died for all. Right? So can you clarify that for us? Yeah, so we compare scripture with scripture. We always interpret the obscure in light of the clear. And Paul said in First Timothy 2, Five and six, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Peter, First Timothy two six. So, you know, sometimes, uh, and we see the same thing in, in Romans chapter five, where Paul uh, Paul is comparing the first Adam to the second Adam, Christ, and he said, just as in Adam all died, so in Christ all can be made right. So. Uh, you know, there's no the, the, this, the unlimited atonement of Christ is is a slam dunk. In fact, you mentioned earlier uh, about four point Calvinism. Uh, of course, to a Calvinist, a four point Calvinist is an Arminian. <laughs> uh, but because people have fallen into the trap of thinking there are only two options, you're either a Calvinist or an Arminian, which is crazy because prior to the 1500s. Neither of those existed. So mm. that means for 1,500 years of church history, I guess people, you know, were nothing. I don't know. But, uh, but anyway, uh, so uh, the, the, when, when people say there are four-point Calvinists, it's because, you know, they, they clearly know the Bible does not teach, you know, uh, limited atonement. Uh, for God's love the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Uh, and, you know, again, Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Um, and just as in Adam, all men fell. I mean, that's a question I often ask Calvinists. Did, did the uh, original fall only affect the non-elect, <laughs> or did it affect the whole world? No, it affected the whole world. Mm-hmm. And likewise, the atoning work of Christ affects the whole world. But it has to be received. It has to be appropriated. And uh, if any, that's, that's the whole point of grace. If anybody dies and goes to hell, they have nobody to blame but themselves, because you know, G- you know Jesus said, "Whosoever will may come, you know, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden." He's, he's made the offer. Mm-hmm. All you got to do is receive it, and if you don't receive it, that's on you. That's not on God. I don't want to get. I, we only have three minutes in this segment. I don't want to get off on a tangent, but just briefly, when when I 
consider a lot of the scriptures that talk about he died for all or that and all who would believe would receive or whatever um it, isn't it that idea that has led some down the false teach to the false teaching of universalism or christian universalism that god's going to save everybody can you briefly comment on that um, I don't know that universalists even read the Bible, so I don't know that they're basing their view on the fact that Christ died for the sins of the world. Um, they, you know, the Scripture is clear that there's a consequence if you if you uh, die in unbelief, uh, you will die in your sins. Jesus said in John eight twenty four, uh, and then in John three. Uh, uh, 18, he says, he who believes in him, this is Jesus talking, he who believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. So universalists just completely miss the point of the fact that we're all born separated from God and we have to be uh, reunited in the spiritual realm with God through faith. And that's, that's, again, 160 times the New Testament says that. So now, I don't think they would, universalists are making a theological argument, they're making an emotional argument, and they don't, they don't like the thought that somebody could end up in hell. But again, we got ourselves into this predicament, we sinned of our own free will, and we have to receive the free gift of our own free will. Amen. Amen. Well, we're talking about the fact that the Bible teaches both election and free will, so... Um, JB, we just have a minute left, but election, briefly, is it the same idea as predestination, or are they different things? And maybe if you want to answer that in detail when we come back, but otherwise just give us a quick um, uh, response. Yeah, so there's a difference between election, predestination, and foreknowledge, and we can talk about that after the break. But I'm glad you reminded the listener that the Bible does teach both, and a a great book on that is by the late Norm Geisler, who wrote the book Mm. Chosen But Free. And so my problem with Calvinism isn't their belief in election. I think the Bible teaches that. My problem is that they say a lost person cannot believe the gospel and that a believer must continue to do good works his whole life or he's not really saved. And so both of those, I think, are personal. I take very personally because they cut right to the heart of the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. Did you say Chosen But Free was the book? Yeah, Chosen But Free. It's a, his classic work, wow. uh, excellent book. On, on this very issue. That sounds great. I've had the ple- pleasure of having his son, Dr. David Geisler, on the podcast. I would have loved to add Norman Geisler, but we have his teachings, his books, uh, videos, and uh, other uh, chosen but free. Sounds like a good one. We're with J.B. Hickson today. We will continue hammering through this issue, not extensively, but as much as we can do in a one-hour podcast when we come back on these topics, Calvinism, and, um, well, more in just a minute. Keep it right here. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. Our guest today, Dr. J.B. Hickson of Not By Works Ministries. And that book, I'm looking at it right now, that J.B. mentioned by Norman Geisler, Chosen But Free. It sounds fantastic. And also, I, I want to recommend the one uh, uh, Norman Geisler wrote with Frank Turek, I Don't Have Enough Faith to be an atheist. So we talked about the there is a difference between predestination and election, and I would love for you to just take us down that path uh, right now, JB. Yeah, so just briefly, you know, there are different terms in Scripture, and they have different meanings. Uh, election, of course, uh, the key passage there would be Ephesians 1. Uh, let me just read that, because it's, it's an awesome passage. It says, um, let's see, in him... Let's start at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, you know, again, my, my colleagues that, that also disagree with Calvinism uh, are so concerned about election that they try to twist, I believe, uh, well-intentioned though they may be, this verse into saying something other than what it says. But it says he chose us, in him before the foundation of the world. And so I and there are other passages that speak of election. So I don't have a problem with the election, but that the problem is that happens outside of time, space, and matter, and we don't have the mind of God. As Romans eleven says, you know, who can understand 
God's ways. Who, who has the mind of the Lord? His ways are past finding out, right? So we just accept election as a biblical truth, and then we move on to what the rest of Scripture says. And, and this is what uh, Norm Geiser calls a biblical antinomy. I mean, he didn't coin that phrase, but he talks about it a lot in the book. And a biblical antinomy just means a truth that seems contrary to logic. And so the fact that, for example, God is three but one, that's a biblical antinomy. Or that Christ is 100% God yet 100% man, that's a biblical antinomy. Or the fact that a virgin can have a child, that's a biblical antinomy. Well, uh, the election and free will is an antinomy as well. Uh, anti meaning against, namos meaning law, so antinomy meaning against law, so or against logic. So uh, I believe in election, that's clear. Predestination is more narrowly defined, and it has to do with what God has intended for us to become, and you can be predestined to another things. In fact, to a number of things. In fact, he goes on to talk about predestined in this passage in verse five. He says, "Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ." So that's uh, more than simply choosing us. He then predestines us to become something, and then foreknowledge again is completely. Uh, unrelated to both of them. It just means that God knows all things at all times. No, uh, Acts fifteen eighteen, known to God from eternity past are all of his works. So uh, anyway, those are just, you know, sometimes people use the words interchangeably, but they, they are different. In that context, it seems like they are closely related because it, he talks about being chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So the next verse, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters, um, predestined is also the, very similar to being chosen before the foundation of the world, isn't it? Well, they're related. You can't be predestined if you're not chosen. <laughs> they're not the same, or that would be a redundancy. Yeah, and, yeah. And, they, and, and he's, the one is broader. He chose us, and then, having chosen us, he predestined us to adoption, but he's also predestined us to holiness. He's predestined us to you know, be part of the family of God, those types of things. So something we laid out, I don't remember if we talked about this at the beginning of the podcast, JB, or if it was something you and I were talking about before we got on the air today, but we would consider those who um, believe in this, the doctrines of you know, Calvinism as our brothers in Christ, but is there a point where they take it too far and then they would not be considered our brothers? How do you approach that? Well, that's a tough question. So there are really two two things in your question there. One is, is it possible for someone who teaches Calvinism as a, as a system of salvation to be saved themselves? And the answer is, of course, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of these guys, and I'm going to give you a quote here in a second, uh, that, that are leading the charge of Calvinism today, like John Piper, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, Jr., uh, Al Mohler, uh, and others. Of course, they, they, I have to believe that somewhere in their journey, as they've saturated themselves with the Word of God, they heard and believed the pure gospel message. And, you know, remember, the gospel is so simple a child can understand it. That's the reason Jesus says, suffer the little children to come unto me. You can state the gospel in ten words or less. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Mm. If you believe that, you're saved instantly. Uh, It has nothing to do with commitment or surrender or pledge or promise or turning from all your sins or stopping your sins or forsaking all your sins. All of those are works that we could never do even if we wanted to. It's simple faith. And so I have to believe they're saved. Um, But that doesn't mean that what they're teaching will lead someone to be saved. Uh, if, an, if all an unbeliever has ever heard, as it relates to how to get to heaven, is what Calvinists teach you have to do to get to heaven, he can't be saved. Because as Paul said, that gospel is contrary to what he taught and what the Bible teaches, and, uh, and it's not going to get you saved. You know, faith has to be in the right object, David. You have to believe the gospel. You can't just believe anything. You've got to believe the gospel. Mm-hmm. And the gospel is Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Uh, in this series that I'm doing, and in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, I show how the fifth point of Calvinism really drives these Calvinists to present the gospel in a different way. Mm-hmm. Because they believe that a person who doesn't persevere in good works is not really saved, they like to front-load the gospel with a bunch of requirements. So you've got to promise and pledge and turn and forsake, and you've got to do all these things to really show you're committed you know, if you're not willing to put your hand to the plow without looking back, you can't go to heaven. Well, that's not a salvation passage. That's a discipleship passage. Mm. We don't get saved on the strength of, 
of what we commit to do. We get we come to the cross. In fact, we sung this hymn yesterday at Plum Creek Chapel. Nothing in my hand, it's Rock of Ages is the hymn. Yeah. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. But Calvinists teach, because they want to make sure you persevere to the end, that the beginning of your salvation is based upon this contract. It's, okay, Lord, I'm really committed. I promise to follow you. I'm going to stop these sins, and I'm turning my life over to you. I'm making you the Lord of my life. I'm putting you in charge, and, and therefore you'll, get, you'll let me into heaven because I've made you Lord. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you simply believe the gospel and you're saved. So I think they're saved. I mean, who, only they and the Lord know, uh, but I certainly would not assume they're not saved. And I think, mm-hmm. unfortunately, some people who are anti-Calvinists they take it too far and, and, you know, really are too harsh and critical. I respect these guys. I, they have a lot of great teaching. I just have a very strong, biblically based, in my view, uh, disagreement with them on the nature of salvation. So we've got seven minutes left, and we couldn't possibly do justice thoroughly. And you're doing a seven-part. By the way, how many parts are you going to go on your series? Well, it's, it's going to go through the summer uh, because in the fall we're starting a different series on how to share the gospel. um, So I'm guessing another four or five sessions. Wow. And so we're just doing it in one hour here. So just understand, friends, we can't possibly cover everything from every angle from both from different viewpoints. But understand we're talking to a primarily uh, born-again Christian audience, more mature generally in their faith, and I call them the remnant. Um, So where we are concerned um, as far as our response to this, being discerning when we hear these teachings, uh, most likely we know we're already saved. It's not going to affect us and, and our idea of our own salvation, but it can affect our how we approach the gospel. So you said you had a quote. Is that uh, uh, applicable to share right now? Yeah, so, um, you know, let me preface this by saying sure. again, you know, this is a pretty provocative quote, and I don't mean to offend. Again, I respect those who hold to Calvinist teaching. I just think they're wrong, and they need to rethink it based on what Scripture says. And um, so, But uh, you need to understand where it leads. And so I've got one quote here from John Piper and another one from R.C. Sproul, Jr., and I just want to read them. The first one's about a paragraph, so it's a little bit longer. The second one's just one sentence. But listen to what John Piper said. Quote, God brings about all things in accordance with his will. In other words, it isn't just that God manages to turn the evil aspects of our world to good. It's rather that he himself brings about these evil aspects for his glory. This includes, so this is what God wills to happen. He says this includes, as incredible and as unacceptable as it may currently seem, God's having brought about the Nazis' brutality at Birkenau and Auschwitz, as well as the terrible killings of Dennis Rader, and even the sexual abuse of a young child. Nothing exists or occurs, nothing that exists or occurs falls outside of God's ordaining will. Uh, It is not inappropriate to take God to be the creator, the sender, the permitter, and sometimes even the instigator of evil. So, I'm sorry, but that's not what I read in the Bible. So, And this is where you get into that tension between free will and sovereignty. I agree that God is working all things together for his good, but I vehemently disagree that, that it's God's will mm. for Hitler to you know kill all the Jews and mm-hmm. for a young child to be abused. Now, R.C. Sproul, Jr., puts it much more succinctly. Quote, God wills all things to come to pass. God desired for man to fall into sin. Hmm. I am not accusing God of sinning. I am suggesting that God created sin, end quote. So that's, you know, these are two leading Calvinists of our day saying that God created sin. Hmm. I disagree. God created man in his image, which included having a free will, and then we chose of our own free will to go over and eat the forbidden fruit. And so God didn't cause that. So, again, don't take my word for it. You know, read these writers with a clear mind. You know, sometimes I've had people, when I quote MacArthur, for example, say, man, I've read almost everything MacArthur's ever written, and uh, he doesn't say that, and I have to literally pull the book off the shelf and show them. And they go, oh, somehow I missed that, which I don't know how you can because it's pervasive, 
um, all of these five points of Calvinism in his writings. But, um, you know, let me just close out by saying, or at least just close out this point, yeah. saying, look, you know, the gospel is, is simple. Uh, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him can have eternal life. And so there is one condition. Uh, you don't, you know, you, you, salvation is not automatic, uh, nor is it forced upon you. You have to receive the gift, and that gift is freely offered. And it's at the moment that you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for your sins, at that moment you pass from death to life and shall never come into judgment. Even if down the road you fall back into sin or you commit some egregious sin, uh, that cannot undo, as Paul said in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from mm. God's love once we become a child of God by faith. So I want to challenge listeners to rest in the the grace of God, the pure grace of God. If you're not a believer and you stumbled upon this radio program, trust in Jesus Christ today. He's the only one who can forgive sin and give the gift of eternal life. Mm, Amen, brother. Amen. And I just want to emphasize the fact that uh, we do need to study up on this and just be able to be open about talking about these things. Um, Because as you said, God so loved the world but he did not save the world, or he, we, the world will not all be saved. Um, but yet, it is a it is choice on our part. It is God putting it out. So God really has elect election, but we have the free will, and we have to take a step of faith. That is on our part to believe. And so much emphasis, as you said, on all those scriptures where a person believes. I mean, look, think about Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He had to believe, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the point Paul makes in, in Romans repeatedly, is that the Jews, by the time the first century came around, had, like so many Christians today, or, or you know, people in Christianity today, had thought that somehow they've got to contribute something. They've got to dot their I's and cross their T's. And Paul reminds them that you know Abraham got saved, and it wasn't, I think, some 20... 30 years later, before he really acted on his faith at Mount Moriah with Isaac. So, you know, we cannot, we've got to keep works and grace separate. Paul says in Romans 4, whatever is not of grace is works, whatever is not of works is grace. And so, uh, you know, we can't make works a requirement either on the front end or the back end. It's not by works of righteousness that we you know, are saved. Mm. Uh, works are a matter of our discipleship and sanctification process and growing in the Lord. There are all kinds of motivations in my book. I have an appendix that talks about motivations for the believer to do good works. There are dozens of them, but we must never do good works in for fear of losing or disproving our salvation. Amen. Uh, JB, to be continued. And of course, you can listen to his teachings on the subject of Calvinism at notbyworks.org. Thanks for your time, brother. We'll, Lord willing, talk to you soon. You bet. All right, tomorrow we've got Pastor Stephen Mannion and Bill Cook of the Black Robe Regiment and the release of the Acts 29 statement of pastors and ministry leaders can sign on that they will never again close their churches at the order of the government. Very interesting movement that's beginning, possibly getting ready for what's to come. Usama Dakdok, expert on Islam on Wednesday. Dr. Nathaniel Jeanson on Thursday. He's with Answers in Genesis. CRT is the subject on Friday. God bless you, and as always, keep speaking the truth about things that matter. <laughs>